Go ahead and grab your copy of God's Word and turn with me to James chapter 2. We'll be reading a section, but we'll be covering, if you hopefully got the message this week, um, we'll be covering all of the book of James um, today. If you don't, by the way, get uh, the, the text updates throughout the week, please let me know. I'll make sure to add you to the list. I'd like to give um, some readings ahead of time. This week was pretty simple reading. It was just the, the book of James, but sometimes I like to give even more to kind of encourage you to engage with the process of preaching. Listen, preaching isn't just sitting uh, and hearing the Word. It is engaging with the Word. And the more opportunity you have to engage with the Word throughout the week, the more your heart is ready and prepared to hear the Word. So I look forward to that every week. And so make sure uh, you're getting those and you're getting involved. I did want to say, um, before we read, we will have a special guest preacher here uh, next Sunday. Pastor Brian Stiles will be bringing uh, the Word for us on our Thanksgiving Sunday. And so uh, looking forward to hearing from him, and I'll try and get a reading from him this week uh, for you guys to send out, okay? Uh, so James chapter 2, we'll start in verse 14 and uh, read to verse 26. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you not want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works, and by works faith was made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled, which says Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Likewise was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. First Baptist Church of Grey Gables, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures. Let's go to the Lord and thank him for his word this morning. Father, we do thank you for this, your word. And Lord, we've got five chapters to cover this morning, and uh, yet... Uh, We know you're going to work through the proclamation of this very thing. We know this is the means by which you bring sinners into relationship uh, with you, that you grow uh, saints into the likeness of King Jesus, and and by which, Father, uh, you make us more and more like him until you return and fully glorify us. And so, Father, this, um, this is of grave importance this morning as we proclaim your word. Would you apply it to our hearts in such a way that we don't just walk away from here nodding our heads and critiquing the sermon as if it was good or bad or what we liked and did not like about it, but you would work in such a way that we're transformed, that it impacts the way we live, Father, that we take your word and we make it practice. We pray for your help in these things, and we ask um, for your comfort and grace that's much needed this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, if you're like me, when you come to the book of James, you've you got to take a little bit of a deep breath, right? Um, it is, uh, it's a bold book. It's a, a hard book. 
especially for sinners like me. Um, but I really think part of the reason is because it's so practical. It may be the most practical book in the New Testament. And I, I really do think that, that what people are looking for today is for religion that is practical. Right? Don't, don't let all the, the mystical talk fool you too much. By and large, uh, those mystical experiences that people want are the ones that will give them a certainty of purpose for when they go to work in the morning. Uh, the spirituality I believe that many sign up for is the kind that can calm their nerves, can lower their blood pressure a little bit, right? But let's face it, people today want a faith that works, and that's what the letter of James is all about. So again, we're going to be flipping through it quite a bit today. Uh, but in this letter, what James does is put forward clear, practical instruction after clear, practical instruction. That's why so many people love this little book and why so many avoid it as well. It's very clear and very practical. James, really what he's doing here is he, he lines up one truth after another, and then right when he has his listeners where he wants them, he delivers a third truth right in the midst of their situation. I, I think that's what he's doing. I think James is, is lining up one truth on one side, and then one truth on another, and then he kind of brings home a, a hard-hitting point in full force to them. And yet... It's very interesting, as specific as this letter is to their situation, along the way, what James does is he provides us with an expose of perennially popular religious myths. And he busts them, right? That's why I entitled the sermon, James the Great Mythbuster, for you who are interested in that TV show. This is what he's doing, not in the same way. There's no science experiments here, um, but maybe there will be. So let's follow James as he lines up these truths. And in doing, though, he exposes three great myths for us. Myth number one that James exposes for us is this. Trials are bad. That's a myth. And James exposes it. Now, listen, I, I call that a myth, but there's, there's an obvious truth in there, isn't it? Like, trials are bad. People typically want to avoid pain. Whether it's physical or psychological, you just want to avoid it. You want to stay out of situations where you are going to encounter things that are hard. We have an instinct in us for self-preservation, for survival, and there's a way in which that's very appropriate. But, but I think if most people were to say trials are bad, what we mean is that it is evident to us immediately when things are good. right? In other words, the assumption of what is good is immediately apparent to us, and we tend to say the things that are hard are just not good, but rather bad. But you see, James here says at the very beginning of the book, in James chapter 1, verse 2, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Trials, he says, are a reason for joy. Amen. He says this for several reasons. First, in verses 2 through 4, he says it because trials are the way to maturity. It's one of the first reasons he gives to why he believes 
trials are bad, or that, that that's a myth, because he believes trials are the way to maturity. We all know that testing develops a product, doesn't it? Working out can develop your muscles if you're trying to prepare for some sports. We know marriage sanctifies us to work through problems that just come naturally and practically when you live with someone else. Trials actually bring us to maturity. Now, once James has said that, we can see it. And though it sounds surprising at first, one of the main reasons James says this is so is to lead us to the second point, which is because down in verses 5 through 8 of the first chapter, James tells us that not only do trials mature us, but it's, it's, it's directly because trials cause us to depend on God. Trials do that, don't they? You ever been through a trial? What, what have we talked about this in Sunday school this morning, right? Sometimes you can be walking through your faith and... You can really just be distant from God, and then a trial comes, and what happens? Well, I need to call upon the Lord, right? Drives us to dependence upon God. See, when all we do, we can do in our own strength, then how will we ever learn to rely on God? See, it's when He puts us in in situations like trials in His love, when He puts us in circumstances in which we have no option but to trust Him, that's when we do trust Him and that's when we grow. And And it's always been that way. It's been that way throughout the entirety of the Bible. When God's leading the children of Israel out of Egypt, He promises, right, I'm going to take you out from the land of Egypt. But what does He do? He leads them right to a sea. Pharaoh's armies are are behind them, pursuing them. They've got mountains to their left, mountains to their right, and right in front of them was the sea. What option did they have, I ask, other than trusting in God? Or in John's Gospel, when, when, when Jesus is just saying a whole lot of really difficult, hard things, and many of his disciples are turning away, and he turns to the twelve, and he says, okay, Will you leave me too? What do they say? We sing it often, right? Lord, what are our options? Where else can we go? You have the words of eternal life. Who else has those words? They realized that they had to trust Him. Or how about you? The things God has called you or is calling you to in your life, putting you in hard situations in which you can't on your own find a way out or find a solution. God, often in His love, does those very things, puts us in those situations in order that we may learn to trust Him. So you see, trials are not bad. That's a myth that trials are bad. Because trials lead us to maturity. Trials cause us to depend on God. But But also, I think we need to see that trials are part of God's good purposes. Trials are a part of God's good, grand purposes. That's what it says in verses 12 through 18 of chapter 1. They're not temptations. Don't confuse the two. Remember, temptations temptations to evil are not from God. But trials are. Because in trials, God, in His love uses them to bring us to maturity, understanding practically how we can rely on Him. Now, I hope you see the importance of this. 
Trials strengthen our faith because they cause us to practice putting our trust in God's for God for things we cannot see. I'm going to say that again without the plurality of God so you don't think that I'm speaking of polytheism here, but monotheistic, all right? Trials strengthen our faith because they cause us to practice putting our trust in God for things we cannot see. So embracing trials, James says, the way he's talking about it here, when he says consider it all joy, it doesn't mean that we must pretend that they're not trials. That's not what he's saying. It simply means that we're not going to let ourselves or our reactions to them be determined by how they first feel. So if something feels hard or bad, we will naturally have a negative reaction to it. But the funny thing is, God in His sovereign love again and again uses things which at first feel bad to us in order to teach us much about Himself. So our emotional reaction, it may be negative to them, but sometimes we should ignore those indications that our emotions give us. Not that emotions are bad, but emotions, I've heard it said, are often like the jet stream for a jet pilot. If it's behind you going in the right direction, that's great, extremely helpful. On the other hand, if they turn into headwinds, they can slow you down quite a bit. And if they are across you, it can be quite dangerous. Emotions are like that for us. Most of the times they are extremely helpful, but often with trials they feel like Headwinds or crosswinds, things blowing across us, causing us damage. We can't take our direction then from emotion. We have to and we must take our direction from God and His truth. What He has told us we should do. So trials strengthen our faith as we practice what God has told us against the opposition we even feel at times within our own selves. That's what James is saying here. God in His love gives us trials to test our faith, to develop us, to mature us. So Robert Browning Hamilton once wrote this. He said, I walked a mile with pleasure. She chatted all the way, but left me none the wiser for all she had to say. I walked a mile with sorrow, and ne'er a word said she. But oh, the things I learned from her when sorrow walked with me. Myth number one, trials are bad. Myth number two that James exposes for us, that he busts for us, is faith is what I think. That's a myth. Faith is what I think. That's myth number two. Again, though, just like the first one, there's there's some obvious way in which that's true, right? Faith, belief, it must involve the cognitive, I mean, a rock may sit, a plant may grow, an animal may have instincts, but people, we believe, we think. Much of belief has to do with intellectual assent, thinking thoughts. So, of course, there's a sense in which faith does include thoughts. But but James wants to line up a second truth for them, which is a little different than that. Faith, he says in chapter 2, is what you think and what you do. That's what he's exposing for us, particularly in the the verses that we read. So he starts, though, at the end of chapter 1, saying the point of hearing isn't isn't just knowing alone. That's not the point. The point of hearing is doing. Right? 
If, if your wife asks you to take out the trash, and your response to her after you haven't taken out the trash is, yeah, I heard you. <laughs> How's that going to go for you, right? No. There's, there's not an action there. We are to accept the word, he tells us in James 1.21, and that means doing it because God desires a righteous life. And religion or faith, which is believed but is not lived, is absolutely worthless, James says in chapter 1, verse 26. Unacceptable to God, he says in verse 27 of chapter 1. Hearing without doing is also dangerous. He warns them in chapter 1, verse 22. He says, But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Hearing without doing is potentially deceiving or confusing. So, so just for instance, you sit here and you listen to the sermon this morning and think because you understood something I said that you sort of gained some sort of favor or merit with God. You're kind of at a crossroads even when you understand something from the pulpit, right? If you understand something and you obey it, that's great. That's how the Lord wants you to live. But if you hear something and you merely understand it, but it doesn't in any way translate into your life, then that's quite dangerous. I, I fear for many religious people in churches, there's a, there's a toxic buildup of much religious truth that goes unlived. James, James is a terrifying book in that regard to what he says about faith. See, he goes on and applies it specifically in chapter 2 to a situation going on in their church. He takes it and applies to favoritism, which is running rampant in this church. That is, treating people according to their external things like wealth. He condemns that. He says there's a word very clearly from, from God in Leviticus 19.18 where he quotes in, in chapter 2 verse 8. He calls it the royal law found in scripture. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's the word. James says to this church, you've heard the word. Love your neighbor now as yourself. Now it's to be obeyed, right? That law makes no sense if you just hear it and don't obey it. Right? For goodness sakes, it's about loving what different does it make if you just heard it and don't do it? Especially in chapter 2, verse 1, as believers, he says, in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Don't hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. Just believers and those, the glorious Lord Jesus should be livers. People who live out of what they know. Of all people. Those who follow Christ should know and live better. And yet here they were judging people based on externals like wealth. But God certainly did not send out a financial application form in order to admit anyone into the kingdom of heaven, did he? No. God has not regarded such externals that are passing. And neither, says James, should you, if you will be a church that reflects the character of God. If you are a church that says you have really heard this word from God. Myth number two is faith is what we think. And certainly it's not just that. It's also what we do. He goes on to say in chapter 2 verses 9 through 11, this very clear command that if you break any law of God's, it's as if you've broken them all. You break any law of God's, 
you've become a lawbreaker. And the reason is, it's because you've fundamentally shown that you do not respect God's authority. So whatever the particular infraction, whatever the statute broken, it shows fundamentally a disregard for God. We deal this, right, this is the biggest discipline issue in the Page family household right now. Is that when mom and dad says something, our word matters because God says it matters. So we often in, in, incur the excuse from our children, I forgot, right? My response to that is, if I had told you that the house was on fire, because that means something to you, you wouldn't have forgotten to run out of it, right? The reality is you don't hear our words as meaning something, and that's why you forget. And that's what needs to change. And, and I say that to tell them this is what we do when we sin with the Lord all the time. When, when we show that His word means nothing to us, we are therefore disregarding and disrespecting the author of life. We're showing that His Word means very little to us. May God help us by His grace. Fundamentally, we show a disregard for God. And then He gives this famous warning in the second half of chapter 2, where He warns, as we read, a faith that isn't acted out is, in fact, dead. A faith that isn't acted out is dead. See, James says, there are people who have faith... They know these things and they don't do anything about them. James says they're the demons. Even the demons believe there is one God. They even shudder. They tremble at the fact that there's one God. They know it in their own heart and somehow it makes no difference in their life. It doesn't translate to anything. So if you were to tell me you had faith, But it doesn't show itself in deeds. I tell you, that is the faith of the demons. But the Father, the faithful, one of the examples we exalt as having great faith in this life is Abraham. In Abraham's life, he showed his faith by what he did. And James goes on to tell us it's it's even true of some of the most surprising people in the Christian faith. Like Rahab the prostitute. She showed her faith by what she did. This was funny. I, I read this uh, earlier this week in a commentary. Uh, it says that when glass, you know, when glass skyscrapers were first developed and became popular in the 1950s, there was evidently trouble with people being scared working in offices 30 and 40 stories above the ground when there wasn't anything visibly stopping them from going down and falling. There was an article written of one of the early skyscrapers that was built and how when the people were first put in, there was one office in which the people just would not work. They couldn't do it because there were their desk and then right next to their desk were these windows and they could look down a good 30 stories from those windows and they were just petrified. They knew that there was a glass window there, but these things were new. People weren't used to the idea that they could do that. And so it was causing a great deal of trouble in the workplace. And the building manager was brought up to the floor. And he explained to them how these windows could handle and hold the stress. And still there was a nervousness. People didn't feel comfortable looking down all that distance. It was causing quite a bit of trouble. And the building manager was just perplexed as what to do. And so the engineer then volunteered and said, just a moment. I have an idea. 
everybody come over here near the inside of the wall. And so they all gathered together in the inside wall, and then the engineer stood back and ran as fast as he could with his full weight into that glass and bounced off. He was either really smart or really stupid, right? (laughs) He was fine. But, But the point is, he was willing to lay his whole life against the glass wall because he knew it could take it. That is faith. That's what James is saying is is real faith. It's not the faith of the person who simply sits there and can read the religious document saying, I believe this. Saving faith, says James, is the faith that throws its whole life onto living out those truths that we believe. It's genuine trust. And I think our problem really is with the word belief. Because we understand it in the English as merely intellectual concept. It doesn't have the idea with it with a a deep and abiding trust. And so we know John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. We think that belief is just some sort of matter of cognitive belief. But I'm going to read you something from the Amplified Version of the Bible. Let me, let me start by saying, don't read the Bible from the Amplified Version, okay? Uh, some versions can be helpful commentaries. That's what this is. Some of them can be absolutely trash commentaries, which is why you don't want to read from them when you do your Bible study. But, but I do like the way this particular verse is rendered there. So I'm going to make this one exception from the Amplified Study Bible, okay? Listen to it. It says, John 3.16, For God so greatly loved and dearly prized the world that He even gave up His only begotten, unique Son, so that whoever believes in, trusts in, clings to, relies on Him, shall not perish, come to destruction, be lost, but have eternal, everlasting life. There you go. Believe, to believe, is clinging to, relying in, trusting in. That's this biblical idea of belief. And that's what James is talking about here. So who is the person, according to James, who has faith? It's not the person whose faith is unemployed. It's the one who lives out God's word. Saving faith is always accompanied by visible acts and evidences. That's the second myth. Myth number two, faith is what I think. Myth number one, trials are bad. Myth number two, Faith is what I think. What's the third one? Myth number three. Myth number three is this. Religion is a private matter. Religion is a private matter. And if you thought the first two had some obvious truths in them, well, this one is the same, right? There's an obvious way in which this is true. It is very personal, religion. It has to be in order to be genuine, Some kind of of simply public religion can be hypocrisy. So there is no debate. It it has to be personal in order to be real. Often people, though, who say that religion is a very private matter, what I think they mean is that they have a hard time talking about it. Yet in the name of religion or spirituality, you have many people talking today about how this life is mine to do exactly what I please, that we should simply take control of our own destinies. Religion, therefore, becomes a tool for self-mastery. Tennessee Williams explained why why he ended up no longer going to his psychoanalyst. 
He said, she was meddling too much in my private life. (laughs) We do have a tendency to think of religion as part of our private lives. Just like our ambitions or our fantasies or fears, that's how we tend to think of religion sometimes. But if what James said earlier is true, that our faith must be acted out, then any truly Christian faith can't finally be private. Personal? Yes. But not finally private because God and His people are involved. They're involved in what you do with your words, your time, and your money. Any religion which includes deeds and actions can't be completely private. That's the third truth that James has here. He's lined up the first truth saying, you know, trials aren't bad. Okay. So so therefore, hard things shouldn't necessarily be avoided. Okay. Then, Then he lines up another. You really, you you know, really hearing the word means obeying it. Any real faith that is real has to be active. You can't just be hearers of the word. You've got to be doers. Okay. So you don't do, you don't avoid hard things. You obey scripture. And then he steps right into their main problem, which I think here is division. Right. If if you read through this book this week, There's boasting going on in chapter 4. Brothers are hurting each other with their words in chapter 3. You even read of them cursing each other in chapter 4, 11, and 12. In chapter 5, verse 9, they're grumbling and complaining against each other. The poor are being oppressed. There's danger against careless teaching. Maybe somebody was teaching or justifying that it was okay to be selfish. But, But it's very interesting, regardless how many of the things that James singled out as problems are, are without words. See, see, words aren't self-expression. Words, if we're Christians, words are things we have that belong to God. In this letter, James is claiming ownership of every word that any believer today would speak. Do you view your words in such a way? Wise speech, he says in chapter 3, is from God. And wise speech brings about unity. But they've been having division. So he says, okay, well, well, what's causing these things? What's been happening? What's the root cause? In chapter 3, verse 14, all the way to chapter 4, verse 10, we're, we're given the ugly heart of it. In a word, it's, it's selfishness. That's been the problem. Selfish ambition in chapter 3, verses 13 through 16. Selfish pleasure seeking in chapter 4, 1 and through 3. And lots and lots and lots of pride, obviously, in chapter 4, verses 7 through 10. Selfishness is at the root of their division. Well, if that's the case, then what can be done about the problem? I think he begins by addressing the root causes. First of all, as he's identified them, it's selfishness and pride, an overconcern with self. That's helpful in and of itself, just identifying it. But second of all, I want you to see, not only is selfishness at the root of their division, selfishness, he says, the answer to it is selfishness should give way in humble submission to God. See, before God, the way up is down. Look at chapter 4, starting in verse 7. James writes, therefore submit to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. 
Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. How can you do that? How do you humble yourself before God? Well, realize that your life isn't your own to begin with. That's a good start. We talked about this Wednesday night if you were here, right? Everything you have and everything you are belongs to God. So you can start by realizing your life isn't your own to begin with. He says that in chapter 4, verse 13. We know this text very well, don't we? Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we'll go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit, whereas you don't know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. All that they have, they should realize, belongs to God. Friend, hear me. Time isn't yours. It's God's. Listen, even pleasure is God's. And it's God's to give and not yours to take. Furthermore... Realize that judgment by God is coming, even as this world's wealth is passing. The first verses of chapter 5 warn the wealthy that everything they are relying on is passing away. But God will judge and that will remain. James says to these early Christians, God will judge you for how you spend your money. God's ownership will be put one day beyond all doubt when he exercises his judgment. So James is telling them that we, we live best in this life when we remember the next. That's true. I didn't used to believe that, by the way. Something that's come with a little bit of age. It is true. We live best in this life when we remember the next. I've often heard the statement, I'm sure you've heard this, he's, he's so heavenly minded that he's no earthly good. You ever heard that? Would that I could meet such a person. Don't think I ever have. That's not us. We Christians, evangelical, Bible-believing Christians, are so worldly-minded that we're no heavenly good. James James tells them that very thing here. He calls them in chapter 4, verse 4, adulteresses. Right? Adulterers, adulterous people, because they have decided to befriend the world in wrong ways by being influenced by the world's standards and behavior. Now, it doesn't mean that they are adulterous people, that they're all out committing adultery. He means that they're adulterers and that they're cheating on God by being so influenced by the world. Now you know why I just wanted to preach this in one sermon and didn't want to spend... A year here, although it'd probably do us well. So, okay, positively then, let's, let's flip it on reverse. Let's, let's look at it positively. What is James telling them to do? What's the resolve to the selfishness in their hearts that's the root of the problem here? Of course, we know it's, it's humility, but how do we go about that? He tells them simply to love peace. That's what he says at the end of chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. He says, But the wisdom that is given from above is first purer than peaceable, gentle, willing to yield... Full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Then the letter closes, encouraging tender concern for each other. Things like praying for the sick, confessing sins to one another, valuing the prayers of the righteous and bringing back the wanderers. 
See, the bottom line is James knows something that we must know. James knows that we show much about our relationship with God by our relationships with other people. You need to hear that. This is something that's very clear in the Bible. We show much about our relationship with God by our relationships with other people. As a Christian, I should know that my primary obligation in this life is not to myself, but to God and His bride, the body of Christ. We are to use ourselves for the sake of others. We are to realize our selfishness hurts others and God will judge us for it. So the reality is you and I should cherish the opportunity of living in peace. Our Christianity, if it would live up to its name, has to affect other people for good as we give our lives in a loving and godly way. Honestly, just just walk away and ask yourself... What does it mean to say that we're followers of Jesus Christ? What does it mean to say we are those uh, of Jesus who came to give his life literally for others if we don't do the same in the way we live? What does that even mean to say we're Christians and followers of Christ if we have no desire to emulate the way he lived, his very purpose in living? Religion is personal, but listen, it's also public It's very much about how we live together. That's what James is crushing for us, that myth. Okay. That's pretty quick for me, I think. That's the book of James. Most of you who are attending our Old Testament survey class are like, where where in the world was that on those Wednesday nights? Um, But let me me just stop by saying uh, that James lays out here, it's day-by-day practical. Understand trials. Live out your faith. Seek peace with God and others. So in the spirit of James, I give you this instruction very, very seriously, church family. Consider your trials joy. Look out for how your life makes your beliefs visible. And especially, watch your words and the divisiveness you sow or allow others to sow. I want you to live not as a captain who fears his boat may sink. I want you to live as an ambassador of a coming king who will judge. Do you? As James says, the Lord's coming is near. The judge is standing at the door. Are you ready? Church family, would you stand as we close with the word of prayer? Our Father, we thank you this morning for every way that you've spoken to us through your word. We have much to pray about, Lord, this morning. We, we pray that you would challenge our attitudes about trials that we face. Lord, we know it's not easy. We know many in our church have encountered terrible trials in this life. Help us, Lord, not to waste them, but to recognize the dependence they've caused upon you in all things. We pray that you'd show us your goodness even in the midst of the trials we face. Father, we ask that you would help us live out our faith. We ask you by your Holy Spirit to fill us, helping us to understand your word, that you would enliven our hearts to obey you. 
We pray for that most of all in this matter of heavenly wisdom, working for peace among us. We thank you for the peace that you've granted this place, a a place that may have a history of not being necessarily peaceful. You've, Lord, I I believe, have, have worked out true peace in the life of those who belong to you and who are members of First Baptist Church of Great Gables. We ask for continued protection and continued continued growth in such ways that we wouldn't just settle um, for being non-confrontational, but we would settle for true and lasting peace, committing ourselves to love one another well, even in the midst of our disagreements, so that Christ would be honored, so that a world who's in desperate need to see how to disagree can see it modeled and exemplified in the local church. Lord, we pray for true wisdom in this church. We pray that we keep the main things the main thing. And Lord, always with the primary issues of doctrine, that Lord, we would be unified in such a way. We pray for wisdom that values your body and works for peace, Lord, so that you would be glorified. Would you teach us to surrender our whole selves to you, that we can truly live for Christ. It's in his name we ask these things. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Longing for that day, we will be resurrected when He comes, fully and finally, in the arms of our Savior forever. Uh, the application, the invitation takes place after the service, many of you know, and, uh, and here it is for those of you who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because this was written to a church, there's a lot here for us, right? We have a whole book worth of invitation application. I would simply say, um, primarily, those three myths. What, what is going on in your life and your view of those things? Are you trusting the Lord that He's using your trials for good? That those trials in and of themselves, yes, are a result of sin. But He's so everlastingly faithful that He's promised that you have the ability to count in all joy because He produces His work even through our darkest times. Can I tell you as a pastor, seeing that in my brothers and sisters, often seeing that in my own life, oh, how it stirs my faith up. When I, when I walk, watch people walk through things that I couldn't, I don't have a box for, right? Things that I just, I, don't, I can't even think about and yet still fight to pursue Jesus in the midst of that. Oh, my heart fills with rejoicing. And, and so that, that actually bleeds into the third point, which is how, how are you connecting yourself to this, your local church? Do, do people know simply a facade of you? Do they know only what you present on Sunday morning? Or, or is, your, is your faith lived so publicly, and even in the context of the local church, that there are men and women here who know the things that your heart is struggling for, Uh, And with so deeply that they are interceding on your behalf constantly in prayer. That they are holding you accountable. That you have true, lasting community. Now, now, let me just say, I I love you, but if if you don't have that, and, and you begin to kind of look at the church and think, well, how can I get it? And it... but. But you say that apart from really wanting to buy into Worship, Grow, Serve. Like, okay, yeah, I know, I know Sunday school. I've been to Sunday school. I've tried that. Not interested. What else? I know. Here's what I got. Sunday school. Here's what else I got. Taking that Sunday school and then living your faith out in action in another grow class. Serving our community and our kids. 
the reality is, if we want to say we have a faith that works, but we're not willing to even serve in the local church, to teach our kids the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, and what are we even doing? Do you think that's, do you think that's telling each other that we're living our faith very publicly? I don't think that it is. Friends, we're, we're losing generations. Generations of kids who have been taught in this postmodern world to simply go after what they feel and think is right to create truth for themselves. And we here have the gospel of hope. We here have the answer. And yet how unwilling are we to even take these very simple truths and encourage our students and our kids in such ways. That's what it looks like to live out our faith in action. It may mean that you wake up a whole hour earlier than usual. I think the kingdom of God's worth it. I'm sorry. The truth of the matter is, this is, this is something that breaks my heart in this church, that we've, we've had to, to, to list our needs over and over again and practically beg people to serve the king of kings. He's worthy. He's worthy. So I'm going to encourage you in that. This is very practical for us as a local church today. Where in your life are you living out your faith? It cannot be something that's merely personal. It cannot be something that's merely private. It must be a public faith lived out within the local church. So yeah, there's a lot of application for us as Christians this morning. The Lord's working in my own heart in those ways to stir me to greater faithfulness as well. If you're not a Christian here this morning, the message is the same for you. Christ is worthy. Like despite of all this, despite of some of the issues we may have and the, the, the quarreling and selfishness we have in our own heart, God still loved us enough to send His Son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. To pay the penalty of things that we could never pay on our own accord. He willingly, being the perfect one who had never broken God's law, laid down his life and then gave us the gift of his righteousness. So even in the midst of all of our mess, if we're tied to Jesus' sacrifice and his person by faith, the Lord God, heaven of earth, who created all things, looks at sinners like you and me as if we've never sinned. As if we've never broken his law. And it's because of nothing that has to do with us, but solely out of his love and mercy that he's shown upon us in his son. And if you have not received that relationship with Jesus Christ by repenting of your sins and placing your faith fully and finally in him, then, then let today be that day. Do not walk out of this building with, a, with, a, with a, a cloud of doubt of whether or not you belong to Jesus. We'll have men down front who will love the opportunity to share Jesus Christ with you this morning. So there you have it. There's the invitation. The question is, what will the response be? Will we walk out of these doors and not be in any way transformed by the word of God and nod our heads and saying, that was some good stuff, convicting stuff. You know what? Keep it. You can keep that. Don't, don't text me after the sermon and say, that was really good. I want to know how the Lord used it in your life. That's what I want to know. You, feel free to text me how the Lord used it. That would be a, a tremendous encouragement, don't you think, Pastor Justin? That's what we want to know. How has the Lord used the preaching of the word of God in your life to stir you to greater faithfulness? Think about that. Think about that. Okay? All right. I'm done. Um, all right. Uh, I thank you so much for being here, church family. Um, my, my wife and I will be at the back of our uh, auditorium to welcome those guests to be here for you as long as we need to be. We love each and every one of you. 
what a gift this church is. Um, it's great to be together with you. So thankful for you allowing pastor to speak some hard truths and study this book um, in, in ways that encourage you to greater faithfulness as well.